0: It's episode 87 of Grow Yourself Up. Welcome back. Delighted to be with you. And today, my guest is Clint Davis. So Clint Davis is an army veteran, an ordained minister, and a licensed professional counselor trained in trauma and addiction. He has a large team of mental health professionals that work together to make a difference in their communities. So he's got a counseling and integrative wellness business in Shreveport in the U.S., Clint is a speaker and he hosts the Asking Why podcast, which I've been a guest on, and that's um, on any podcast platform or you can find it on YouTube. He's also the author of Building Better Bridges, a guidebook to having difficult conversations that can save our children. And um, Clint and I talk a bit about the culture in the southern U.S. um, states in the beginning of this podcast, and you'll notice my response to some of this. because he he described a very kind of patriarchal structure. And, but we really kind of navigated through that. And I, I, um, I really want to kind of honor and thank Clint for his honesty around his discussions about his relationship with his dad, how that impacted him, how that has impacted his parenting, and how he continues to navigate that today. And I think that um, men talking about their relationships with their fathers is something that we don't hear that much of. And we don't hear that much about men talking about their relationship with their fathers because in our patriarchal culture, men have not really been allowed their vulnerability. They haven't been allowed to share ways they struggle emotionally or relationships they're struggling with. Women are much more allowed, in inverted commas, in our culture to have vulnerability and to express sadness, whereas generally men are much more allowed to have um anger and aggression and so part of healing our patriarchal culture is allowing everyone to have all of these feelings the full range vulnerability pain fear sadness angst all of that and so i hope that listeners can really kind of benefit from that and hear um that real time negotiation and how that how that kind of works out because the whole one of the one of the main purposes of this podcast is to break down shame and so that we can all start to internalize a sense of of being good enough, that we are really good enough. And so I'm really grateful when guests come on and share um, some of their story and their their own human messiness and how they're actually negotiating that, because it provides um, inspiration and hope and sometimes a model, or sometimes just an acknowledgement of walking alongside for for us. And there's there's a lot of discussion. We have some very useful discussion about um, building better bridges. Clint has this analogy of that we have to have difficult conversations with our children when they are younger, which provides scaffolding for having difficult conversations, say, when they're in their teenage years and older. And so um, that's towards the end. So I think you all really value that. Okay, let's dive in. Hi, Clint. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It's really a delight to have you on. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a bit about your path to fatherhood and about your children and kind of paint us a picture of, of your kind of path.
1: Yeah, so I'm uh, 40 years old right now. I have two boys who are six and nine years old. And so we're in, you know, just past the toddler years and into kind of the, the pre- pre-puberty with my oldest uh, years. And so it's been been a really fun season. Um, My path to fatherhood, we were married about five years. Me and my wife, we've been married about 14 years. And we were married five years before we had kids. And I always wanted to be a dad. I always wanted to be a father, uh, mainly because of my own kind of childhood experiences. My parents divorced when I was about eight. And my dad was just always gone, always working, um, in some ways pretty, uh, aggressive and in some ways extremely sweet. So it was a, it was a mixed bag with him. And I, I never really kind of knew where I stood. I didn't know if it was a, you know, because of the divorce and because of my mom's communication about my dad, or if he was actually the way he was. And then I had my own experiences with him that didn't go well. And that, um, really impacted the way I, I wanted to not be, um, and then, you know, lots of good qualities of ways that I wanted to be. And so I just really wanted to be a dad. That was something I always wanted to be. I really wanted to parent boys. Um, that was, you know, something that I don't know, because I didn't have that relationship or wanted a different relationship. That was something that I was like, you know, looking forward to. I really wanted to parent girls too, though. I had tons of nieces. I'm the oldest grandchild and the only grandson. And so I was around little girls my whole life, around women my whole life. And and that was part of my culture growing up. So, the men in my family would be out, you know, smoking and talking and hanging out, while the women are all in the kitchen and cooking and cleaning. And we're from the south, so it was definitely that way in the south in in the United States.
0: When you say you're from the south. And it's definitely that way. Tell me more about that. Let's just have a segue into that. Explain what you mean.
1: So in, in the South of the United States, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, the men work. The men go out and, and kind of do their thing. And the women cook and clean and pick up around the house. And it's just that kind of um, that culture, which, you know, not judging either way. But what I always saw was that, the you know, the women would cook and clean and then the guys would come in after talking or hanging out and, and they would eat. And then, you know, we'd do whatever family event was there. And then the women would go back in the kitchen and clean and put up all the dishes. And the guys would go back outside and and talk. And that was just never my personality. I never
0: it makes me feel fun of rage listening to us.
1: Yeah, it was definitely that's definitely the culture a lot. Um, You know, I would say all over the place, not just in the South, but especially the South. Um, And. I would, you know, kind of go outside with the men and
0: even today.
1: Oh yeah, even today for sure. I mean, it's gotten better I think in a lot of places and with a lot of people it's not the same I think. Um one of the positive, you know, things of of old school feminism especially, you know, is trying to get men and women to see that the household tasks, the things with the kids, changing diapers, picking things up, cleaning and cooking like, you know, it should be a shared event. It shouldn't just be on one gender. And yeah. And so a lot of my friends are that way now. A lot of my peers, we, we don't think about it that way. If anything, I'm trying to get up and, you know, get the dishes done and, and get the house cleaned and get the, get the kids fed. So because I know my wife is going to have them most of the day or a lot more time than I am. And so I think striving as a dad to find that balance was, was inf- influenced by me seeing it done so differently than what I wanted it to be done. And then I, as a Christian, uh, as a Christian person, I felt like it was the opposite of how I saw Jesus treat women. Uh, he he treated women very equally, and, and like they were very important, and, and they were in, involved in everything, and um, they were lifted up, you know, to a very high place in his life. And and yet, culturally, I d- I did not see it that way. Um, and so, you know, that's that part of also influenced how I wanted to be a. Dad. The
0: the church also. Um... I think, really upholds patriarchy. The church, in many ways, talks about how, um, as a woman, you can self-actualize by either being a virgin or being a mother. And, um, I mean, not that I talked got you on to talk about the patriarchy or church, but um, I think the church, in many ways, has to address a lot of these things and not um, put women down and allow um, women to... Because in some sense, they, they treat us like we're the second-class citizens, and the church upholds that. Many churches do. Maybe not your
1: church, but— um, Yeah, yeah, definitely not my church. Um, we, you know, that's people, and that's religion, and that's the church as a whole, you know, from the Catholic church to the Protestant church. But that's not what I read or what I think Jesus shows us in Scripture. Yeah. You know the Bible does not speak to put women down, or to it actually says for you know, me as a husband to lay my life down for my wife, as Christ did the church a hundred percent of the time, and that means emotionally, physically, spiritually. You know my job is to serve my wife and serve my family first, and then get my needs met second. Now that doesn't that can lead to a lot of unhealth too if it's not a reciprocal relationship. But at the end of the day, when there's stress and there's crisis, I feel that my only answer as a husband and as a father is to is to put my needs to the side and meet the crisis and meet the needs of my children and my wife and their emotional needs in in hopes and, and um, in health, it'll get reciprocated and then we'll move forward. And so I think, uh, even though we're not talking about the patriarchy in the church, I think I learned a lot of bad lessons, but for whatever reason, uh, really wanted to do the opposite of that in my marriage and with my kids and, and uh, as a father.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um... I don't know the Bible anywhere near as well as you do. I was raised in a Catholic household. um, But I think there's a lot of um, the way that maybe the Bible's been interpreted. It it would go the man, the woman, and then the children. And I think that hierarchy is really unhelpful because I think in some ways um, we have to really, I mean, not in some ways, I think we have to really break away from that and see ourselves as equal. Um, but I can hear that in your church, it's different. And, And Clint, tell us how your expectations, so you had these expectations of really wanting to be a dad and what it would be like and how you wanted to do it different to how your dad parented you. How, what do you notice now about your expectations? Like how did the actual experience of parenting differ from your fantasy of how it would be and how you would be actually?
1: Yeah, I would say... We've had a really rough go of it because our first kid, Grady, um, he had really bad food allergies. And he had what's called F-Pies, food protein-induced intercolitis syndrome. And so he almost died the first year of his life twice from uh, ingesting the, just the food from the breast milk. So it was a very intense situation. Um, <clears throat> but I felt, like, I felt like I did a great job. Yeah, it was tough. So we had EMS come out to the house to revive him. We had to go to the hospital. Uh, the second year of his life, they thought he had leukemia. I mean, it was just, it was a lot.
0: My wife, that's so scary.
1: It was terrifying. Um, and as a husband who, you know, who hasn't really, doesn't know a lot about, you know, all of those things, uh, I just tried to be there for my wife with low, low expectations. I had no expectations for a lot of things, I would say, the first three years. And that really made a huge difference of just going, hey, I'm just gonna be here. I'm gonna do the best I can. I'm gonna change diapers. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay up. I'm gonna, you know, do all the things that that I really wanted to do because I wanted to be attached to my kid. I wanted to be um I wanted him to see me and feel me and and be safe with me from a very young age. And and by the grace of God, like being a therapist and doing my own trauma work in my own life, I knew that was something that was very important. That was something that like I did not want to miss You know, those those faith times, those tummy times, that skin to skin contact, you know, he's breastfeeding around the clock. And so it's like the only time I'm going to get with him is when, you know, my wife, you know, takes him off her breast and and then he's going to rest or he's going to change or, you know, he's going to need all the work. And so I would just take that time to really uh, connect and attach. I took like 12 weeks off. I'd saved up all of my my time off. And so I was home for 10 or 12 weeks with our first kid. Which was just a special gift to us that most people can't do. But, you know, working with clients and working with families as a clinician, you know, that's one of the one of the huge benefits is going, okay, I see how this goes really badly. Let me let me prepare myself and, and let's set ourselves up for for success in this area. Um, I think I think where yeah. where I overdid it is that I thought i'm gonna be the best dad ever i'm gonna connect i'm gonna be intimate i'm gonna be present and there's gonna not gonna be any problems because i'm gonna do all the right things and um that quickly i quickly realized that like even so
0: perfectionism
1: yeah yeah and and in, in more of my my therapy- in therapy it's more like stra- for me it's not it's not perfectionism in the sense of like uh, organization or details it's more of the perfectionism of like I want to be excellent at this and my excellent at, my excellence will make things better yes and and that's true to a degree, but what I think I've learned as a parent is that you can be a perfect parent, which nobody can be, but you can try to be a perfect parent, you can do all the things right, and your kid has their own personality and their own uh, fears and their own anxieties and their own um, doubts that no matter how much you tell them you love them, no matter how much you attach to them, they still struggle with trust in you they still tr- struggle with Loving themselves, with validating themselves, and I think that's what was really uh, devastating for me was, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do all these things right, and it'll save my kid from heartache. And I realize now, you know, obviously that heartache is just a part of life, and my job is to help them through the heartache, not fix it all for them or take it all away.
0: Yeah, and I think that's such a beautiful reflection um, around perfectionism and also confronting our own limitations because um my perfectionism is similar to that, that if I'm like really excellent, and especially as a therapist, knowing all the child development stuff and knowing about attachment and knowing how important attunement is and all of that, I think there's really this idea of I will do all that perfectly or I'll do that like amazingly well and then it'll all be like sunshine and rainbows. Um But to some extent, that thing when you said where you overdid it, that- almost, because I really recognize that thing, what you said about trying to protect them from all heartache. And really, we can't protect them from heartache. And actually, trying to do that um, takes away their chance to grow their own resilience. I mean, have you noticed that as well, that when we try and overprotect, we kind of hamper them in some way, actually?
1: Yes, I think that's a big problem within our culture and within psychology is, you know, for hundreds of years or thousands of years, children were to be seen and not heard. There was no understanding of attachment or emotional connection or what the child needs. And that caused a lot of problems. But at the same time, you know, these kids were working themselves they were they were you know seeing death they were you know taking care of animals they were they were dealing with real life stressors that were external that are just in the world that as a person you have to deal with and so that built a lot of resiliency into humans for hundreds of years even though the consequences of their emotional issues with their parents were big well now i've seen a swing where you know very few kids at least in america or in first world countries you know are having to deal with any kind of death or any kind of You know, weather issue or any kind of like discomfort within their own household and where the trauma is coming from is all the extra emotional trauma or the 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 smothering and helicoptering of parents who are super anxious and hyper, you know, um, protective and they don't let them you know, climb a ladder. They don't let them do any, you know, sports. They don't let them take any risks. Like they're never going to let them hold a pocket knife, you know, just all these things that like teach the kid, well, everything's dangerous and everything's unsafe. And so I need to be hyper anxious and critical of myself. And, and so I think what I'm trying to do, and I think, well, what we talked about when you came on my podcast as well is like, we, we try to find this middle ground of, you know, letting our kids take healthy risks
0: Tell me about, so I can hear that you're going for the middle ground. How, going back to what you said about um, your own dad and how you wanted to be as a parent, how has that really, um, like what have you noticed about the ways in which you struggle that are, are connected to your childhood and how have the ways that you learned to cope in childhood impacted the way you parent?
1: That's a great question um, and something I'm working with daily in therapy and with my pastor and just with my wife. I think um, one of the ways that I have coped with, you know, a lot of things is over explaining myself and trying to say everything perfectly and emotionally right for the other person. So really overtaking and overcompensating like making them feel reassured and making them feel okay over my own confidence in what I say and what I know to be true. Um, What happened a lot when I grew up was my dad wasn't around. You know, he really wasn't emotionally engaged with me. He didn't know me and and really to this day doesn't know me very well. And so he would, I wouldn't see him for weeks or he wouldn't know anybody that w- that I know. And then I'd have a conflict with him that he misunderstood or that he mistook And then he would tell me all these things that I am. He would say, you know, you're selfish. You don't care about me. You don't love me. Um, Up until this, literally this year, he says things like that to me um, over complete misunderstandings that I've over explained, right? Like I've even explained, like, here's my intentions. Here's why we're doing this. Here's why I think it's best. Um, I hope you can trust me. And then he, you know, feels slighted, feels jaded, and so that coping has led into my leadership, my marriage, my parenting of wanting to overcompensate and overexplain everything in my life to everyone. And then when they even when I do that, they if they still, you know, think that I had ill intentions or their own trauma came up, it's just it, it could be it can be very devastating to me. Um, luckily and thankfully, I've worked through a lot of that. And so even in the last couple of years, we had a big kind of blow up in June where uh, we went on vacation for the first time with my dad with my kids. And I knew that my kids could only last about three days on the vacation. And he had booked it for seven days without asking me. So after about three days, I said, hey, dad, we're going to go. We're going to stay with some other friends for a day and then we're going to go home. And he got very angry you know, told me I didn't love him, told me I didn't care about him, told me, you know, that we're trying to build a relationship and all this stuff. And so I explained myself and explained all the details of why. And he still he hasn't talked to me since then. And, um, you know, so even as a 41 year old counselor, you know, we all have these things that we're dealing with that come up. And so what I have to do is look at my children and recognize that sometimes I project onto them my own fears and my own insecurities, that I let that affect my parenting. And so the more I am aware of my triggers and my insecurities, you know, the, the more I can, um, to, can parent them authentically. Recently, I, I was thinking, you know, one of the biggest triggers for people that I see in, in sessions, but also for myself, is when our children are allowed to do something that we weren't allowed to do. So when my kids have big emotions and slam the door or talk back or cut their eyes at me, um, That's huge. man, that can really, really trigger me because when I was a kid, my dad would be screaming at me and I would kind of uh, sigh and roll my eyes and just be tired of it. And then he would get th- physically threatening because I rolled my eyes. And so if my nine-year-old rolls his eyes, I can feel that, like, oh my gosh! Do you know what would have happened to me? And I make it about me, right? I, I go, I don't say that out loud, but internally, I'm thinking, dude, my dad would have told me or knocked my teeth down my throat. And you're sitting here at the table, you know, rolling your eyes over chicken nuggets. And so, you know, that's that's some of the stuff I think come that comes up for all of us that we have to be aware of.
0: Absolutely. And there's so much in what you just said that I want to return to. But just rolling your eyes at the chicken nuggets thing, how do you, in the moment? Um, kind of soothe yourself because I think that this is such a massive theme with, with, with those of us who are parenting after our own kind of trauma and tricky childhoods. Um, and I think that there's so many people who go into that bucket that, that didn't know they went into that bucket before they became parents because, um, they just kind of didn't really know what happened in their childhood or they weren't aware of what they didn't get um but that thing about you are allowed to have feelings that I was never allowed to have you're allowed to um have actually even express yourself in ways that I wasn't allowed to you don't I don't force you to finish your food in the way that I was forced or any of those things how do you actually in that moment at the dinner table remain in relationship with your son um and and soothe yourself at the same time like what do you find really effective for that
1: well, I think it takes a lot of humility, a lot of me recognizing, you know, I look at my, my dad or my mom now, cause it let's you know, my mom's not perfect either. And she impacted me in a, in a long, in a large way as well with her health. Um, I think now I recognize that I am my dad, that my dad's not a monster or some awful person or, um, you know, t- a terrible guy. He, he loved me and he loves me now. Um, He's trying to do the best he can with what he had, and and I'm okay with it. You know, if he called me today, I would let go of the situation and move forward with boundaries because I recognize now that like I'm just as capable capable as him of losing my temper or saying something I don't mean. Um, If not, if not for the grace of God and also just all of the work and support and time and energy I've put into healing that our parents didn't have a chance to do. There there were no trauma therapists. There was no communication coaches. There were no people to, you know, help my dad with his PTSD or his trauma from war or any of those things. And so I think what's helped me the most is recognizing that I'm not a victim and that I that my dad's not a perpetrator. That he is a human being who is doing the best he can and I love him and I want to connect with him. And when he's ready, I'll be, I'll be able to do that. And so knowing that and doing that work, you know, has really helped me to let go of a lot of resentment and anger. And I'm not trying to work out those things with my kids. I'm not trying to get my needs met by my children. I'm not trying to see them as a reflection of me anymore. You know, I don't, if they act up, I don't go, oh, well, then I did something wrong. If they're if they successful, I don't go, well, I've done something right. I don't make it about me anymore. I'm not, not perfectly, but for the most part, I'm trying to let my kids be them and have their own emotions and have their own issues and have their own struggles. And yes, I'm going to assess if I can do better because I want to. But I'm not, I think when we have a lot of pain from our past and because even psychology has taught us really A plus B equals C. Yeah. um, And I talk about this in my book, Building Better Bridges, but there's this like, there's this, um, there's this narcissistic way, not that we're all narcissists, but there's this narcissistic wound that we have where we parent as if our children are a reflection of us good or bad. And so I think that's a key point that people have to work through is to stop projecting onto their kids. Um, but in the real time moment, um, there's a lot of like pausing and giving myself a beat and, and checking in with like, where am I feeling this? What am I feeling? Let me step away for two seconds and say a prayer or say a mantra. Um, Let me, you know, come back in and let me lower my tone and and be quiet. Let me, let me speak quietly and be in control of myself. So they have to listen. Um, and making sure that I'm not blowing my top and dysregulated. And, and then when it does happen, because I'm not perfect and when I do get mad and raise my voice, um, going back to what we talked about earlier, I always repair the rupture. And that's a huge thing for people. That we didn't get, so we don't necessarily know how to do it. I thought, like, and I don't know about you. We, you know, I think this is true. Said it before on one of your podcasts, but um, a lot of times I'll be anxious in the moment about the conflict, and I'll and it'll remind me of something that happened to me. Yeah, and I'll go, oh my gosh, my kid is gonna, they're gonna think about this when they're older. They're gonna like live with this. They're gonna bring this to their therapist because I had this moment. But I've never. In my life, had anyone come to counseling and say, "Hey, listen, my dad or mom yelled at me, or they lost their temper, or they were lazy, or they were disconnected," they apologized for it, they explained why they did it, they took responsibility for it, and then they changed their behavior for the better. But I need to talk to you about it as a counselor. You know, nobody comes into counseling to talk about people who repair. They come in to talk about people who who continue to rupture and who don't repair the issues, and so. I don't think there's a way to navigate parenting where you don't, where you don't rupture the relationship, but you can always have humility and repair and say, I'm sorry. And say, you know, dad's disobedient sometimes too. And sometimes dad messes up and, and here's the ways you've seen me mess up. And here's how I reconcile that with mom and with our friends. And here's how I'm going to reconcile that with you. And so for me, it's not so much about, or I'm learning that it's not so much about like, perfecting parenting in the sense of my behavioral change, but it's about, uh, you know, being prepared before for the for the crisis, doing the best I can during the crisis, but making sure I circle back and repair and let my kids know, here's what's true about this, here's what's true about you, and here's who's responsible for being an adult, and it's not you.
0: I think that's so beautiful because I think there is no way, no one, I have to agree with you, no one comes to therapy to say, um, I have to talk about my parent who repaired all the ruptures with me because the thing is, is most of us have parents who never repaired any ruptures with us and we we don't even know how to repair ruptures ourselves. And really, all relationships feature um, rupture. Every single relationship because it's not, it wouldn't really be a relationship if there wasn't a break in connection and rupture. Um, but I love what you said when you talked about um, that you are your dad and also what you said about uh, narcissism because... I think in many ways, um, when we talk about narcissistic behavior, we are all narcissistic. We all think things are about us. Um, and and many of us, because what I can hear about your dad is that he thinks a lot of stuff is still really a lot about him. Um, and, and I also do that in my parenting. I really have to notice you are your own person. And when you are, my, one of my daughters said, the other day, she says, "I hate all of you," and I was like, "Oh no, that sounds that's awful." But but I was just able to say to her, "Oh yeah, you really hate some of us sometimes, don't you?" And she sort of moved through it and everything. And I feel so happy when they're able to have big expressions like that, or call me out on something, or um, talk back, or are rude to me, because it feels I'm so happy that they feel safe enough to do that. But when we've had our own trauma, I think there's a massive piece around growing ourselves up. Where we have to let go of the idea that we are responsible for everything, because in some ways it's quite um, it's quite con- like comforting to think we are in control of everything, and if we just try be- try harder and do more, we can make it better. But really, often we can't. And in that trying, and in that like like really, we get so kind of tense and worked up. And um, I really identify with what you said about just kind of stepping back and thinking. I don't have to take credit for the good things and I don't have to blame myself for all the bad things. I can just hold them gently and like witness their life and their development. I really love what you said about that. Um, and that also we all gonna become our parents in some way because that's kind of woven into us so much.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful because even as we're do- recording this, you know, I'm thinking about if my dad listened to this podcast, not that I think he would, or if one of his friends listened to it, you know, what I, what I what I wanna be able to do is be honest about my experience as a child And what I, what I went through, but also recognize that it's a skewed lens that, you know, I probably was being a selfish little teenager. I probably was being egotistical. I probably was being selfish. Um, and he had no clue how to communicate that to me. And so what I ended up feeling was that was all my fault instead of what I would have liked for him to do would have been like, Hey, I know you're going through a divorce and we don't see each other. And that can make you XYZ or that can make you feel this way. How can I help you to find the truth? How can we heal this relationship? How can we, how can I recognize that? Yeah, I'm sure it really is hard to trust me. But because of his own pain, he just wants a hundred percent implicit trust. He wants me to think extremely highly of him. And so I spent my entire life, um, uh, every birthday, every father's day, every Christmas being very intentional about telling him how much I loved him, how much I respected him, writing him little notes, giving him books, being very intentional about feeding his his ego to show him, like, this is what I think about you. This is what I love about you. And yet, when any stress or crisis happens, he reverts back to thinking the worst about me and speaking the worst about me. And so that's taught me in my own life and my coping that, like, man i've got to work really hard to say it all perfectly or or people are going to get mad and in reality they're not thinking any such thing you know they don't need me to to sugarcoat it or take care of them or overcompensate and so i'm learning
0: and also what um you know when you talked about your dad that you said because it's you know many of our parents have that narcissistic wound where they they um because when, when you behave in a narcissistic way, it's very painful as the child of that. But that parent is like that because of their own massive narcissistic wound and because they were never seen as children. I think it's really important to hold the kind of generational context there. And it sounds like when you said, was your dad in in the Vietnam War? Was that the war that he was in? When you said he's got PTSD?
1: Yeah, he was in the Navy and he was on submarines. Um and he saw one of his friends killed in that. Wow. I mean, he has a a whole history of things uh, in his childhood with his parents, um, lots of abuse, lots of trauma, lots of alcoholism, you know, things from his past and divorce that, you know, had I experienced, I would have come out and done the same things. And so yeah. again, yeah, I think, I think we have to recognize, well, we have to, we have to have, to, we have to be able to hold two things at the same time, right? Two truths. One, Um, I experienced a lot of trauma and a lot of things I shouldn't have experienced from him that really impacted me negatively. And also, he was doing the best he could with what he had, and I can't be the victim of that forever because he was a victim first before I. And if I want to blame someone, you know, I can go to his parents, to their parents, all the way back to the first human beings if we want to find blame. It's better to recognize with grace that we're all imperfect and be forgiving and move forward. Again, that doesn't mean taking abuse, that doesn't mean not having boundaries, that doesn't mean uh, engaging in a deep relationship with those people if they don't want it, because that means we, we can love ourselves and take care of ourselves um, and value ourselves and our family and not be in toxic situations. But I think what I've seen in psychology is the same swing where it's like, well, if somebody's not nice to you or you don't really like their personality or they're difficult, just cut them off because they're toxic and unhealthy. and It's like, well, you can't do that either. Like some people are hard and people have problems. And as long as they're not being abusive, as long as they're not being extremely toxic, you've got to manage tough relationships to some degree um, or you're going to cut everybody off in your life. And so I think we we need guides. We need therapists. We need to work through our own emotions to find out which ones we should have to set those firm boundaries with and which ones we have to have some give and take with. And they're, it's not an overgeneralized conversation.
0: No, I mean I think that um, there's a lot of um, stuff specifically on social media, and I mean I do think in some, like in quite a lot of cases, people have to go no contact because the parent or whoever the relationship is with is so damaging and so toxic. And I think, but I think that's very much an individual decision. And I also think the position that you're reflecting is often comes quite far into a journey because it's a very um, emotionally um, complex position that you're occupying. Um, like you've done a lot of growing to get to that point because initially I think that, I mean, my own therapist many years ago said to me, um, I could also blame back through the generations. If I want to really blame my parents, then I'm going to have to go back and back and back and back. And that really, um, but at some points, I've really needed to blame them. Like That's been an important part of my journey of like, you did this. Yeah. And um, and now it's left me like this. And of course, I'm the one who has to take responsibility because I have to change how I'm going to be going forward. Um, And I think I I also don't believe that blame is helpful, but it is often part of the journey um, until we can see, because I think that when we have our own children, it becomes so clear how... Blame doesn't help because if we blame others, we then land up blaming ourselves as well. Because that punishment and that sort of judgment goes to others, but it also comes really to us. And then we're very harshly critical um, of ourselves, I mean. And I think that um, that kind of um, the position of holding the two truths can sometimes also be really hard because when we feel, when, when we've got a very wounded inner child, We're not always able to kind of get a hold of our adult to go. Oh, yes, okay. Um, Yeah, I just think I think it's just a complex position to occupy, and very mature, emotionally mature.
1: It is. I mean, it's taken me um, over twenty five years of going to therapy and meeting with pastors and doing the work. I mean, I've been in therapy at least every other week for you know over twenty years since I was nineteen. You know, so. Um, it does take a lot of work, uh, and I'm not any better at it uh, than anybody else. But what I would say is that um, you're right. You you have to acknowledge your victimhood at some point first and sit in that for a while and recognize the pain that's been done to you. Yeah, And then you've got to move out of that victim seat uh, through grace and through forgiveness. And that's why community is so important. That's why having other people in your life is because you can't. You can't always be regulated. You need your spouse or a friend or a counselor to help you find the truth when you don't know what it is. Yeah. And I think one of my mistakes is that I don't like, I don't like the, I I don't mind conflict, but I don't like other people being upset with me or, and so I want to fix the problem. I want to talk it out. I want to process it. And sometimes you got to let things simmer and sometimes you got to give other people space to process. And man, I don't like that. And so, uh, recognizing what's a crisis and what's not a crisis uh, is another important tool and you got to bounce that off other people and go, okay, hey This is how i'm feeling. This is what happened I know, you know, I don't I don't know how I feel and have that person who knows you really well go well, Hold on you've been here before You know if you text them or you reach out to them and they do this you're going to feel this and here's the cycle So I don't think we can do it alone I don't think we can just be self-actualized as an individual sitting in a room or dealing with our kids. I think we definitely need support from other people 100% of the time.
0: Absolutely. And I love what you say about um, when's it a crisis, <laughs> because I think when we have not had enough containment as children and haven't learned to process our feelings, there's so much that can feel like a crisis, particularly if we um, feel like we're, we haven't not please someone else and even in parenting so many things can feel like a crisis like you need to sort it out now and this is such a big problem and and that that really sitting with things and learning to just notice what's going on and that it's not a crisis it's not life-threatening and that we can tolerate discomfort we can tolerate what we perceive if someone else is cross with us we can tolerate different opinions and also we can tolerate if they don't want to process because um I love processing as well, but sometimes my husband doesn 't want to process with me or other people in my family don 't want to process or they don 't want to process in the same way or they don 't have the same access to their feelings and we have to really like notice i can't we can 't get people to do what we want to do that 's just not the way life goes um, and I really I want to return to something you said about we have to have difficult relationships. I got to a point before my father died, so my father was an alcoholic and Um, not very good at relationships. And I lived in in the UK and he lived in South Africa. And um, he didn't really ever phone me or there was no real relationship. And I got to a point um, after talking to various friends and lots and lots of therapy where I realized that I would have to make an effort if I wanted to have a relationship with him. And even though it was imperfect and um, kind of messy, I did want to have a relationship with him. So then I I started to phone him and he would sometimes say, "Why are you phoning? Like, what do you want?" And I really had to kind of um, sit with how sad that made me feel, actually. But also that, like, I'm, I sometimes would say, "I'm phoning because I want to have a relationship." You know, and we had to practice. We had to practice at what that looked like. Um, what if you're crying? That's okay. I think this. My father never. Um, I wasn't planning to cry. But not that I planned to cry ever, but he never stopped drinking. Um, and his drinking killed him. Um, even though he was a doctor, his drinking still killed him. But I'm pleased that I did try to have a relationship. Um, and I think that I really, I sort of want to honor what you say about your dad, that that it's difficult and that you would, you do still want some contact because I think there's always that little part of us, um, you know, even however old we are that wants to return and try and do things differently and have them be different. Like I wonder so much sometimes how much fantasy there was of me trying to get him to be different so that it would be better for me. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's all I do. Uh, I think there's a lot of, you know, my whole life has been dreaming about it being different so that I can have validation and so that I can know who I am, and so that I can feel like a grown man and an adult, and I think that's a huge thing that that all of us need as as children, but especially as a man, somebody telling me like, "Hey, you're a man now. Like, I trust you, and I'm gonna peer, I'm gonna be like a peer with you, and I'm gonna help you through marriage, and I'm gonna help you through you know your sex life, and I'm gonna help you through uh, parenting, and I'm gonna help you through business, I'm gonna help you through these things." you know our our dads, our moms are supposed to be those people, like our whole life we're supposed to have this person in our corner who we can go to and who we can um reach out to and and i th- I know they all want to be that for the most part, you know they they all think, well, that's why I'm here, and that's what I want to be and it's like, well, but you're not being that, you don't know how to be that, and they can both be true, you know you but you've got to acknowledge that it's not about you anymore, and that some of the things that that you've done have hurt me and that, you know, I can't keep taking that for the rest of my life and be a functioning person and be the best husband and the best father and the best, you know, businessman I want to be. Yeah. If I continue to take this damage and if I'm obsessed all the time about the lack of this thing, I've got to move on. I've got to move through it. I've got to process it. And so, but yeah, to this day, I had a dream. It was probably three weeks ago. I had a dream And he was there and my dad was there talking to me and he gave me a hug and I could smell his cologne in the dream. And I woke up from the dream and I knew I know what his cologne smells like. And, uh, you know, I I just had that longing feeling of like, man. And I immediately wanted to call him and make amends and tell him I'm sorry and tell him, you know, all these things. And I was like, oh, I've already done all that. I already told him all these things. I've already spoke all of this truth. There's nothing else for me to say to him that's going to change his mind. I just have to sit. And wait for him to let me know when he's ready to trust me and when he's ready to have a conversation with me that's difficult, but he's going to also have to take personal responsibility for his side. I can't take any more responsibility or explain myself anymore. And then I I felt really good and my anxiety kind of dissipated. But man, I, I appreciate so much your vulnerability because... Yeah, when there's sometimes music, especially for me, like I'll be in the garage doing something and I'll hear some song and I'll start just boohooing, you know, about divorce and about my childhood and I'll let that be a time to process and you're never quite ready for it. So I get I get that it, it hits us all sometimes when we start talking and, and using that right brain and that motion. It's like, ugh. Oh.
0: I've never cried on this podcast before.
1: Well, I'm glad you felt safe enough to do it. Actually,
0: no, I have actually cried in the introduction. But I think that... <laughs> you, clumped. I think that, um, you know, what you said about the, um, it's so poignant listening to you share about how you want that guidance and that validation. And it's so, there's so much grief, I think, still wrapped up in that. Um, No matter how old we are as adults, because we can get it from other people. I can hear how important your pastor is to you and how important your church community is. Um, For me, I get that a lot from my therapist and my friends and my husband, but there's And we obviously have to give it to ourselves a lot um, as adults. But there's such a loss when you don't have that warm, really affirming relationship with parents who just give you that, that deep sense of you are so unconditionally loved. Um, and I think that when we haven't been unconditionally loved, we spend our whole lives in some sense trying to find that somewhere, you know. Um, and um, And often we try and get it from work, actually. I'm really noticing that of like, okay, this is is not where I'm going to get it from. Um, But yeah, it's really really touching and poignant to sort of reflect on this and to just notice um, how we really have to gather up our own wounded children and take them to people who can actually love and support us, you know, and not constantly go to the wrong people.
1: Yeah, it's very good.
0: And I think that's such a process of going back and forth, back and forth.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, my wife has been a huge um advocate for me and who I am and um you know some be- some best friends that I have, my pastor, my therapist. It it took a whole army of people uh to validate me and continue to tell me who they think I am for me to finally start believing it over the last five or six years. So, I think um and as I've believed it, right, I've become more confident in speaking truth and being graceful and so yeah, it's it's a journey and it's a work and um you know, it continues to lead to me to to putting out stuff that and content and podcasts like this, where and I just really want people to heal, but I want people to hear it from a very vulnerable, non pretty picture, you know, and and a realistic one.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think that um we could go on forever here talking about this because I what you said about um um that it's, the the vulnerability is important and also that we need those people to mirror to us. We really do need because when we have not good enough mirroring, it follows us around. We really need adults to mirror back to us our essential goodness. But I wondered if this would be a good time for you to tell us because you you've spoken a lot of truth in in your book about building better bridges. Do you want to tell us a bit about that and how that ties into your work and how that's helpful for parents?
1: Yeah. So I, you know, as I've been working in this with the trauma and with the family attachment issues and all the things we talked about today. That led to, um, you know, me kind of doing the work around my own sexual trauma, around some exposure that I had to pornography and to um, some relationships with children that were very traumatic. And I thought I was the only one. I thought, you know, that was something that just happened to me. And as I became a, a parent and as a clinician, I started hearing it from so many people. And so, in January of last year, I got to do a, a TED talk on the on this context. the 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 content was on the idea of childhood sexual neglect, and so it's a thing that's not on the ACEs scores. The ACEs scores is adverse childhood experiences scale. So there's physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, and then there's physical and emotional neglect. But the concept that I'm pushing forward is um, not having conversations with our children about um, consent, body safety proper terms for private parts and their normal sexual development outside of eroticism um, in an age-appropriate way has led to an entire generation of people having neglect and trauma in their past um, because our parents didn't know how to talk to us about these things. And so the idea of building better bridges is that the bridge is a conversation between you and your child that needs to be built over the course of their life so it can hold heavy things. And when we don't build a bridge around their sexual development, around their health, yeah. around who can touch them and who can't, around how to protect themselves online or with devices or from pornography or or strangers that are online, um, then when you try to have that conversation at 14 or 17 or 25, the bridge collapses and it can't tolerate that conversation. And so I wrote a book um, called Building Better Bridges, a guidebook to having difficult conversations that can save our children. And I take people from zero to 18 on what are the conversations that need to be had? At what age are they supposed to be had around mental health, emotional health, sexual development, the internet, cell phone, social media? And I I kind of give a, a parent's guide to um, how to do that. And more importantly, or as importantly, why to do that? Why why is that so vital why haven't we done it why hasn't that been done for us and what so we have really two processes one is prevention so how do we prevent some of this stuff we talked about today and and sexual trauma and exposure to ha- from happening to our children and then recovery how do we recover ourselves from our own neglect and abuse and exposure but then how do we help our children if we've missed it if we if we weren't aware if we if we've already kind of fallen into the traps, how do we help them recover and make some changes in our life um, to help them end up being a healthy adult? And so the book is all about that. I I use a lot of research and a lot of trauma and clinical examples. I I use my own story, and then I use stories from countless clients and experiences I've had to really uh, help parents understand how they can do this better. And it's very the reviews are great. Uh, They've, you know, lots of reviews on Amazon. People can go and look, but I made it very conversational. So, you know, sometimes you'll read a clinical book from a therapist and it's real heady for a normal parent. And they're like, what is all this? And so I try to do a really good job of making it a balance of the neuroscience and the psychology and the trauma, but also just conversational in a way that the average parent's like, oh, this is a, one of the reviews I read like two days ago, it said it was like sitting around the fire with an uncle and just listening to, you know, wise advice, but with, with the psychology behind it. So I was like, I liked that review a lot.
0: That's lovely. That's really lovely. Well done. Because I think that's such an important thing to talk about. the um The thing about consent and about properly naming body parts is huge because so many people have grown up with so many nicknames. Instead of calling like a vulva a vulva and a penis a penis, there's tons of nicknames which really obfuscate any stories that may be told about what's happened to our children. So I think that like that alone is so important. Um, And I I love your analogy of the bridge because I think that's really true because we can't suddenly launch into like heavy discussions about, um, you know, trying to protect yourself when people just start to have sex or things like that. If you haven't built up a lot of kind of trust and, and also importantly, no shame because sexual development is not something to be ashamed of. And having healthy sexuality is also not something to be ashamed of. But um, there's so much shame that gets mixed up in this space. And so then people just avoid it altogether. And so books like yours really go towards breaking down shame, which I think is just crucial.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things, I I speak all over the world and all over the country about this and have been for the last four years. And one of the things I'll do when we get to this section is I'll, I'll say, okay, to prove my point, right? I I want you to raise your hand if your parent talked to you about masturbation. And I've had a group of, you know, from 5,000 to 300, and I've never had more than three people raise their hand. And a lot of places, no one will raise their hand, especially within the church. And so I try to explain through that lens, like that masturbation happens really early for girls and it happens for boys as a normal, just part of development. It can lead to very unhealthy, you know, coping. But in the initial growth and development, it's a normal sexual developmental thing for people to do. And so, if they haven't ever been talked to about that, if they've never have a a um, conversation with a parent about that, that shame and fear and surprise are going to be the main things that they're going to feel as a child and then they're more likely to go and do it in a negative way or view some healthy unhealthy pornography or yeah. you know have a negative arousal template because they're managing that all on their own they don't know what's good or bad or what should feel good and then they you know they get exposed to something online or with another child and then it's off to the dysfunctional races and so it's the same thing with menstruation so many so many little girls in my office You know, adults tell me, oh, I I never had that conversation. And I found out about it by having a period and being at a birthday party and needing another mom to come and give me a tampon or give me a pad or give me like panties or whatever. And so we got all this trauma going on from just a lack of understanding that we do not need to overexpose our kids to eroticism, but we do need to have normal, sexual, healthy, age-appropriate conversations with them so that they're not figuring out all that stuff on their own especially in the world of the internet and social media and TikTok and everything
0: else. Yeah, exactly. And I think that we've come a long way with periods, with, with bleeding. I mean, it's it's interesting because I am 48, but when I grew up, my mother referred to a period as the curse. Mm. And um, in, in many circles, I think some people still think it's a curse, but there's so much shifting around that and there's so much more literature and books like period power and being connected to your cycle and really celebrating it and, um, you know, working in alignment with your cycle and everything. So there's so much more openness about that. But I don't think that we've caught up with, say, masturbation with, we've caught up uh, quite a lot with body part names, but the honest c- conversations about masturbation are still um, about lots of different things are still, uh, there's not that much. But so I really, um, it's um it's great to hear that you've covered all of that. And now I'm also just conscious of the time, Clint. And I wondered, um, there's any other pearls of wisdom that you want to share with us about, um, maybe about how you, you kind of are kind to yourself in parenting and how you give yourself self-compassion. You know, like if you've had a really tricky day with your boys or, um, you yourself are really grumpy, how do you kind of, um, be gentle with yourself and, and not feel like you have to over explain a hundred times and, kind of honor how much work you have done. How do you, how do you sort of access that?
1: Yeah, I think uh, for me, prayer is very helpful. And prayer is a reminder for me of who I am, who God says that I am, that I'm worthy, that I'm lovable, that I'm valuable, that I'm enough. Um, you know, other people might not believe in God or have a different religious perspective, but I think when it comes to any kind of health, we have to have internal worth and value. We have to know and believe that we're worthy and valuable as imperfect people. Yeah. And that even when we screw up or don't get it right, that we're still worthy of love and affection and that things are not over with, that it's not hopeless, that it's not you know all ending because we lost our temper or because we were lazy or because we were selfish. And that we have the power right there through vulnerability to make amends, to reconcile, and that our children, that's all they want. They just want to reconcile and be with us. And, and if we can have that humility and humble ourselves and say, I'm sorry. Um, we, I just, the other night I was talking to my nine-year-old and, and I said, I said, Hey man, I was like, I've never parented a nine-year-old before. I've never been a parent before. Like this is my first time being a parent and I'm figuring it out with you, man. Like I am, I'm doing the best I can, but I don't know all the right answers. Um, I don't, I don't know if everything I'm doing is going to work out for you, but I'm doing my best. And And so I, I talked to him about that, you know, when, when, as a Christian, we'll talk about obedience and I don't really like that term a lot of times because it's gotten such a like power trip and such a, a negative, uh, thing from a lot of people. But, you know, when he knows that he shouldn't hit his brother or that he shouldn't lie, you know, I'll say, Hey, you know, you're, you're choosing, you know, and you're choosing disobedience. And then I'll say, but I do that today. I did that today too. Like I know what's right. And I still choose disobedience sometimes. and i have to make amends and i have to apologize and i have consequences from your mom or from friends or from work and so we're all doing this together and so i think for me is as i'm as I'm, as i'm as authentic as i can be uh i it lets me realize like okay well at the end of the day he knows me and he knows me fully he doesn't think i'm pretending he doesn't think i'm perfect you know, and just having those conversations actually relaxes me a lot because it helps me lower my expectations for the whole thing, and so um that that's what I would encourage people is if you're really dysregulated or getting dysregulated with your kids, stepping outside of yourself and doing some work to find what are those what are those deep beliefs that are coming up, and I, I truly believe there's only like maybe three words that the average parent says to themselves that are lies you know everybody has different words but maybe it's i'm not good enough or i'm not known or i'm broken or i'm bad i don't i don't know what the word is but i think everybody should take the time like maybe today if they listen to this to to write down what are the what are the words that come up every time because those three or four words they magnify to a thousand different things yeah and then we, we fight about the thousand things and we, we be anxious about the thousand things and we work on the thousand things. And yet it just returns back down to these, these three lies. And so then we have to go, okay, well, what do I actually believe about myself? What does God believe about me? And then what are the, what are the people in my life that I trust say about me? Am I enough? Am I known? Am I special? Am I unique? And if we can start to believe that those things are true then that's going to shape our thoughts and feelings. That's going to shape our actions. But And we can stop blaming everyone else for making us feel a certain way and start taking responsibility for our own beliefs, which, in my opinion, shape everything.
0: Yeah. And I think that's so lovely what you said. I um, I have a different relationship to the church to you. I was grown, brought up in a very strict Catholic household. Um, so we did lots of things like going to First Confession and going to First Holy Communion and things like that. And I've kind of moved away from, I don't go to Catholic Church anymore. But um I do have a str- I also pray a lot, actually. And I have very simple words where I say, guard me, guide me. And I'm talking to, I'm talking to God or I'm talking to the universe. And I do find that that's comforting because sometimes things can feel really desperate. Um And I do find that comforting. And I, I, I like what you said about, because for me, those words that you were talking about, that's just shame. It's the shame that we're not good enough. And so really working on our shame so that we can just believe we are good enough. Because everyone listening to this is good enough. Because what you said about what does God think about me? God has created everyone. We are all divine creations. Um we we all have, you know, divinity inside of us. And I think that we really lose that. Um but thank you so much for joining us today, Clint. It's been really wonderful to have you and to hear all your um all your different insights and anecdotes. I think um Mm -hmm. Lots of people will really love listening to this. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Thank you so much for having the time to uh, make time for me and for us to talk through these things. It was very, it's always therapeutic to talk uh, with you and with people like you who understand and who are vulnerable people and who are doing their own work because, you know, a lot of times people look at us and think we have it all together. And I would say that hopefully we're farther on the journey. And so, you know, as we've done the work, you do get healthier but that doesn't keep you from having unhealthy things in your life. Uh, I would love for uh, you know your listeners to get the book so they can find me on at Clint Davis Counseling on Instagram or Facebook. Um, and then they can find the book on Amazon. It's Building Better Bridges by Clint Davis. You can just type that in. Um, and then I have a podcast myself that you've been on called Asking Why with Clint Davis that they can find. And it covers a lot of the same stuff we're talking about today. So Thank you for your time, and I hope your listeners get a lot out of it.
0: And all of those, so the details about Asking Why and about Clint's book, Building Butter Bridges, and all his contact details and Instagram handles, that will all be in the show notes, and details of how you can work with him. Um, That'll all be, um, and his practice, because I know you've got a big practice, that will all be in um, the show notes. Thank you. You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up, Hosted by Kath Cunahan, we'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself for more heart centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living.